Happy Friday, friends, and thank you for listening to Movement Matters with Colin and Diana. So today we're releasing Richard Jackson's conversation. Um, God, what a brilliant mind that dude has. Um, so we're talking primarily about like his fly fishing world. He just took Alex on that wonderful trip. Woodworking, motorcycle maintenance. He is a rider for sure. And over four decades of just all out philosophical exploration from Schopenhauer to quantum mechanics. The dude knows his stuff, mm-hmm. including, of course, because he's interested and now is very interested in Feldenkrais and language and the subconscious. So it just goes on and on and on and on. He's also so huggable. He's so huggable. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Warning, though, your brain may explode while listening to this episode. So please take caution while operating motor vehicles under the influence of this conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Um, kidding. Enjoy it. Definitely listen to it while driving, especially <laughs> if you've got like two hours and you don't have anything to do. Just this is the perfect accompaniment to your long ride. Driving the kids to vacation, just go. Listen to this. It'll be the best vacation. It'll be a good start to it. Cosmic. Okay. Enjoy. Thank you. You rode in on what? What is that? It's actually called a Janus motorcycle, Halcyon. Um, Janus, if you remember your Greek gods or Roman gods. See? Right, right off the bat. Is, uh, <laughs> had two faces, forward looking and backwards looking. So it's actually a handmade copy of a 1920 Indian motorcycle. That's the backward looking part of Janus. The forward-looking part is they used lots of modern stuff on it, like disc brakes. However, no fancy computer electronics, 100% carburation, kickstart, yeah. no gas gauge. A lot of our audience hardcore. is pretty hardcore into motors in general. A lot of motor heads, so let's, let's bash Harley-Davidson for a moment. How is it better than Harley-Davidson? Well, I, I, I went from... a pretty large motorcycle, a 1200cc BMW sport cruiser, very aggressive bike. Um, but it got to the point where it was just a little bit too big for me. Um, weighed close to 800 pounds. And I, I laid it down a year and a half ago at a stop in front of my son's house and could not pick it up. So at that point I said, you know, Right get, here in Doylestown get, proper. Right here in Doylestown. I'm getting a little older. Maybe I should get something a little lighter. Um, so this is a 250cc. Okay. And I met you about six years ago. That was right before you went across country, right? Yes. Before you had your Easy Rider phase, right? Uh, yeah. I went... Uh, a part of Easy Rider. I, I took a, a pretty long motorcycle journey, a little over three weeks. Spent most of it in Arizona, going through Arizona, down into Mexico, into Nogales, uh, up to the Grand Canyon uh, with a friend of mine, and basically lived and rode for three weeks on the bike. That was BMW. That's made for That was the BMW, cruising. not the yeah. not the two-headed god. God no. or goddess? That, good question. Oh, gosh, okay. I'm not sure they're sexual. They may be... Ro- Okay. No. All gods? All Greek gods? Uh, well, no, that particular god. Oh, okay. I'm okay. not sure. Maybe Joe will look it up. We'll see. <laughs> okay. 
Good, good, good. This is not even anywhere close to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, but we'll get there. That was just warm up. Warm up. We'll get there again. Yeah. Well, what about woodworking? We, how'd you get into that? So, um, it goes way back. My father actually was a uh, cabinet maker and uh, had a hard time making a living at it because it's not easy to get people to pay for really good cabinet work, hand-done work. And um, he ended up being a machinist. So I was exposed to a die maker. So I was exposed to it at an early age. But really didn't pick it up until after graduate school and just found out that I, I loved working with wood. And uh, I do a lot of things the old-fashioned way. I use, I use equipment, you know, table saws, planers, joiners, surfacers, stuff like that, routers. But I use that for what I call rough cutting. Um, all the other work is hand done because um, it's both more enjoyable and it's actually more exact. You can get down to less than 1 64th of an inch by planing something with a good plane. And you can't get to those really, really tight tolerances using machines. It's not easy. So I do hand cut dovetails. I do, you know, carving. Um, I prefer working only in hardwoods. It's, uh, you know, things like pine and whatnot are not my, my favorite woods. Most of them will be African mahogany, walnut, cherry, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And my most, uh, one of my most recent projects, actually I built a table for you, it's a Nakashima oh, style. Oh, we're going to get into that. Nakashima style <laughs> table with... What oh, you mean the one at my house? Yeah. You're right, Which that was the start. Yeah. In, inlet butterflies, they're used to... Uh, when you have a, a crack in the wood, uh, a butterfly literally looks like a bow tie. Some people call them bow ties, or something you carve and then lay into the wood to keep the, the crack from spreading. They're also aesthetically pleasing. But last year, I also handmade a uh, Windsor chair, completely by hand, started literally by splitting the wood with a fro and took, took right. it from Winds, there. Windsor chair and fro. Yeah. Well, fro is this sort of like L shaped odd looking thing and you use it to split the log so it started with the log and after you split it with log then you use things like a draw shave you know which uh it's like a big long knife with handles on it you use something called a spoke shave which is what they used to make spokes with in the old days you use an adze which is sort of like a um looks like a hammer only it's curved and it's a knife and you use that to dig out the seat Use an end shave, which is used to help hollow the um, depression for your, your rear end as it sits in it. And I also went so far as to right away to a, a Windsor chair maker in England and had him build me what's called a travisher, which is used for very fine carving for the seat on a Windsor chair. And uh, oddly enough, you can't, they're very hard to get in this country, and he's a person who's made his reputation by making Windsor's chairs. So that's 100% zero electrical tools, 100% hand-built. How long did it take? Months. How many months? Um, I'd say top the problem, bottom probably about six. But part of that is, you know, you're splitting wood, it's green. Um, you have to let certain things dry and put into position. There's other parts. The back of the Windsor chair is curved, so you actually have to steam bend the back. 
You put it in a steamer and after about four or six hours in a special steamer, believe it or not, wood is, um, and, and the back is oak, uh, is very, very flexible and you can bend it very slowly into a form and then clamp it up and if you leave it four or five days, it'll stay in that position. Mm. And then from there, I carved it down with a uh, an in-shave and a draw shave mm -hmm. um, to get it to work. And when you create the spindles, rather than cutting them on a lathe, when you cut spindles on a lathe, um, you're actually, if you think about wood and the grain that's along it, you're actually cutting the spirals, the, the grain of the wood, you're weakening it. When you use a, a, uh, a spoke shave and cut it down, you're going with the grain. So you can create very thin spindles that are incredibly strong. Mm. And again, it's slightly green and you bend them into shape, you wedge them and if you do it correctly, as it dries, the wedges and whatnot actually force the joint to take place. Now, I did use glue because it's the 21st century, but it's built as if it was the 1600s, and they did not glue those chairs, and they are still together and working, and they're fine. It's because of the type of joinery that was used. I capture a lot of aliveness in that process. Is it true? Like you're working with something oh, that is still yeah, alive and moving? You become one with the wood. You're, you're, you know, you're 100% concentrating on the wood. It's, it's, uh, it's an art form. It's enjoyable. For me, the enjoyment is the process. It's not the end product. When the product's done, it's like, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> it's give, it, give it to somebody, put it in the living room. What's my next project? It's, it's the process that I love. Mm -hmm. So that one table is in my living room. Yes. And for all those who have been to Koru and who are only maybe admirers of woodwork and don't want to necessarily hear the in-depth intricacies, which are obviously related to what we're going to get into, um, that lovely table in our little kitchen area was made by Richard, right? The uh, English elm from the Berkshires. That's right. That's right. That and was, I did something a little That was special. RJ. I did something a little special in that. The turquoise. Um, I took turquoise, ground turquoise, and where there were small cracks in the wood, I inlaid the turquoise in it, used isocyanate, which is basically crazy glue, and just layered and layered and layered, and then slowly shaved it down so you get the sparkling effect of turquoise that runs inside the wood. It's unique. It gives it some pizzazz. And it is beautiful. Everybody that's seen it knows that. Yeah. So other than being wonderful friends and a general fan of Koru, you mostly connect with us through Feldenkrais, it seems, right? It's, that's that's true. Yeah. Um, actually, if I can diverge for a moment, it... it, it you Let's might... go all the way into the intricacies of how trees grow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not enough time. Nakashima does a better story. The soul of a tree. Um, you and I go back many years, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that resonated with me is uh, you studied comparative religions in Columbia, and actually you said you didn't want to go there. No, I won't go there very far, <laughs> and and um, I'm going to go there all the way. Gave me the name of a book that I picked up and read, mm -hmm. and next week I'd read the whole thing. I was ready to give you a book report. <laughs> Which book was it? <laughs> Remind me. It was on the radical nature of, of um, Jesus Christ. 
Oh, right. Zealot. Yes. Yes. The Zealot. That's Actually, a it was good very, one. Very, very good book. Mm. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author, but he's been on TV a yeah. lot. Reza. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he's a. Hopefully, I didn't uh, say that wrong. He's a very renowned uh, thinker. And I had spent my undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate work. You know how in, hard it's going to be to not talk about religion. I know. In, in <laughs> philosophy, uh-huh. specifically in epistemology. And that sort of created a harmonious vibe where I felt that you and I locked up. We, are, we think in similar ways. You know, a lot of things, sometimes it's the language. You have to learn the language of the subject and after you know the language of the subject because philosophy has sort of its own language. Mm-hmm. Then it's a little bit easier to talk about. And um, that's where you and I linked. Then, of course, you were my trainer and still are in many ways. Mm. Lovely. So we can talk about religion. Uh, you can talk about. You won't get. You, you won't get sweaty. Yeah, I was just nervous. teasing the, the, the old. No, he talked about it. the old adage. Never you were acting religion like we're in a polit- bar or yeah. politics. <laughs> yes, that's true. Maybe in a bar. I don't know where it's true anymore, but it's not true here. It's not true when you're recording. Yeah. We're gonna go all the way to that corn kernel we were talking about. Uh, that's fine. Yeah. I consider myself um, very deeply spiritual, but not necessarily religious in the sense of organized religion right well you mentioned epistemology is also etymology and we can yes unpack the word religion in that context but Etym- et- there's etymology and entomology uh-huh. <laughs> you know i'm a fly fisherman so on the one hand you're studying bugs <laughs> no on the other hand you're studying the derivation of, oh that's uh, right you're uh, in a, you make your own flies and everything yeah i do i do i, I uh, i'm strictly a catch and release i use barbless hooks um, I do it for the sport. You have to learn the uh, the stream, the bugs in the stream, what's hatching. And uh, there's nothing to me quite like standing in the middle of the stream with a pair of waders on, no one around you, and watching muskrats scurry down the hill to drink water, and ducks land on the side. It's, it's You've really become part of nature. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I want to say that you're one with the tree that you're cutting in half and converting into a winter chair. And you're mm-hmm. one with the stream and the muskrats. Yeah. So, That's yay. part of it. And part of it is, is um, you do it. You don't think about it in an abstract fashion. You're doing it. You become part of it. And that's, that's true in woodworking. I, mean, I, I like everything. I like the smell, the feel, the touch. Um, sawdust smells differently for different woods and it's it's just part of the whole process and if you read Nakashima it's it, it can be a very spiritual process to create something we'll have to send this to Nick Offerman remember that book I lent you yes <laughs> is it know? because in that process of uh, connecting to it being the tree or the stream or the fish or the animals right. you forget yourself or forget the edges and blend yourself in with the process is that yeah and i think that's essential i mean if you're doing it that's what it's like um if you're thinking about what you're doing then you're not really doing it it's uh, the analogy i like to give is if you're skiing downhill and you're thinking about all the things your body has to do to keep balance and placing your poles and where the skis are and are you vacuuming and how close are you're gonna fall and hit a tree okay mm-hmm. when you're truly skiing 
None of that's in your mind. Okay, it's, I don't want to say it's mindless, but you're a part of it. And um, that's the enjoyment that you get when you do that. Same thing, by the way, why I ride motorcycles. You are not, you, you are part of it when you ride a motorcycle. If you're not paying attention and you're not part of it, someone will hit you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. so it brings you to the moment and yes. to that awareness of the here and now. Sounds like Alan Watts, be here now. Yeah, 100% in the now. Yeah. As opposed to being abstract, which is not in the now. It tends to be the past reconceptualized in articulated linguistic process and projected. And when you're projecting things in your mind of what you're doing, you're not doing it. You're mm -hmm. projecting it. So that captures a little bit of the essence of how how and why is it so hard sometimes to talk about Feldenkrais because it's a deeply experiential yes. something something where if you're not doing it you're not doing it you can't talk about it read about it it doesn't really come close to what it the experience is and then it brings you to the moment to the present and and it's all about the process yeah, so absolutely 100 totally agree i should mention that um my my wife has scoliosis and had a, a pretty hard time of it. I know um, your wife was was uh, literally for about six months laying How on the couch. How is she today? She's great. Yeah. She's she's doing fine. Nancy, we love you. And um, it was Colin and um, Diana through Feldenkrais and working with her. And at first, I I have to admit I was skeptical. I said, you know, what is this? You know, crystals and incense and tree hugging. West Coast woo woo. <laughs> um, but to my surprise, it actually worked and worked. Next week on the fast. podcast, we have uh, who is it that does the crystals and the incense burning? Um, that we're <laughs> go for it. crystal down. Yeah. <laughs> but um, one of the things when she first started, I said, don't think that you're going to go there and have them do this for you. You know, or this is going to happen in, you know, you're going to go two days a week and all of a sudden it's actually going to change. You have to embrace it. You have to do it. You have to do it consistently and repetitively and become part of the process to do it for it to take hold. That word it, I love when we hear that. Those, those little words are the key. It and that and this. So the it is what we can talk about. Inevitably, it's you have to experience it, but... Let's talk about it. What is the it that you're referring to? Okay, so... Um, <laughs> ah, deep breath. Begrudgingly. And actually, I, I can go into this. I just don't want to you know, segue too far off the trail. Um, this is the trail, man. You know that. It, it, it is. Yeah, it's the trail the is the journey. It's the journey. And I want to make a side note before you get into the it, because I know you won't forget. That's just peeking away from the trail for a sec. I just want to say there's nothing against crystals and miracle workers. There's a place oh, for everybody, right. for anything in this world. Yes. And thank you for clarifying. Love everybody. That. Just a do your thing and, and acknowledge that there's, if there's truth in what you're doing and your intention is right, go and do your thing. Yeah. 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 We hear that kind of uh, dismissive better than snobbish yeah and i'm gonna that's not make a point that that's not the attitude here no. to say you, what you're doing doesn't work or what i do you is just better. gave me a crystal for my birthday i love crystals <laughs> i i wear them i carry them i have them in my room i sleep with them 
and there might be a little sometimes essential oils going definitely in every room yeah though though it's not what i practice um completely with the work that i do i believe that they are powerful and they're part of nature yeah no i i I didn't i didn't want to uh i I was saying that part tongue-in-cheek the typical west or east coast mentality Mm -hmm. of someone who um is in the mechanical world and doesn't get involved with this stuff is to pass that off as nonsense and that quite often is the reaction that people have to it but once you look at it study it and get into it lo and behold there's a lot of substance to it mm-hmm. and and uh, this goes back for thousands of years this is yeah. not new so uh, I do totally agree with what you said and I wasn't trying to be uh, yeah. dismissive of any particular I, I didn't want to correct your you know put a finger on you I just wanted to um, I know what you mean also because yeah. sometimes this is intangible it's hard to explain so I love that you were a skeptic about it uh, hey the best the best person in the world to go out and proselytize something someone who didn't believe and then mm-hmm. does believe Mm-hmm. and has reasons to believe and understands the depth behind the belief. Yeah, we have to ask the question. You can't just take it and believe in it. You have to see if it works for, for you. For some people like Paul, you had to be struck by God through the cloud with lightning and be blinded and lifted up to the fourth heaven or wherever he went. And then all of a sudden you go, duh. Oh, I get it. When we were talking <laughs> last Thursday, how did you think we were actually going to avoid religion? You, I, it's I, like gravity with you. I, just have it. <laughs> What is the it, Rich? I'll bring you back. I take you out and I bring you back. I think that it is exactly what he's talking about. It is, but it's 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 something that sometimes it's hard to grab a hold of. And I think one of the reasons it's hard to grab a hold of is we tend to, as we talk, which we're doing now, converse or read, um, we tend to think of most of our thought as being what I would call a cognitive analytic linguistic process it's like we're talking to ourselves inside our head when we read quite often reading we're actually saying the words to ourselves inside our head and there are conformant rules that it goes by it's boolean logic and there's philosophers like bertrand russell that wrote principia mathematica and some other people that tried to distill this down but the the point i want to make is that a lot of what we would call thinking in the Western tradition is that analytic linguistic process. And that gets in the way because sometimes what you're talking about is, is something that doesn't lend itself well to being encapsulated in a network or framework you throw over with words. A good example would be intuitive thinking or intuitive knowledge, music, um, love passion Um, these things can't be you know really described well you Mm -hmm. can sort of lead somebody into what it's what's like Mm -hmm. but how do you put it into words now why you can most likely talk about what they're not that's right it's not you can you can sort of lead the path and say hey it's down there it's down there but it's it's experiential so until the it the process becomes experiential it, it's really in your mind as an abstract process and you haven't arrived there mm-hmm. yet. And how much more limited when it's just a concept? I, I, I think it's I think it's very limited. I think I think language limits things to a great extent. I think in Western society 
a lot of philosophers, um, especially in the 20th and 21st century, would agree with this, that um, analytic thought in a linguistic sense is very limiting. And sometimes, Colin, you'll know this, when you, when you get into reading um, the religious mystics mm-hmm. and things like that, it is a different area of thinking. I would call it intuitive-based. You know, emotional is part of it, intuitive. And it's really part of our right brain, left brain hemisphere. We're, we're, we're what's called a hylomorphic composition, composed of two parts. And the intuitive part um, is as much, if not more, of ourself than the analytic process. You know, how do you do art? How do you understand music and your love of it and the different passion that you <clears throat> excuse me that you have with it? If you're if you're playing a violin or whatever the, the thing may be, if you're sitting there looking at notes which are very mathematical in mm-hmm. harmonies it's a mathematical progression and thinking of all this individual <laughs> you're not gonna be playing the violin. When right. you're playing the violin, that stuff is not in your mind. You're mm-hmm. you're at what some people in sports would say. You're in the zone. Mm-hmm. Flow. Yes, it is. It is flow in many do you, ways. Do you do you know how to say that guy's name? Our big. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that later. On but the flow state. Yeah, the book. talking about what we talked about last yes. week. Flow state. Yeah. And you're referencing what we talked about as well last week. Um, that one specific text in that chapter of mysticism, William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. Yes. Um, yeah, you're speaking to that that chapter in that context. The noetic quality, and we're all talking about the ineffability, the yes. fact that it's beyond words. Yeah, that point about language, we've talked about that being in a, in a whole conversation unto itself, paradoxically. It's just, it's like a chicken and the egg. I, I perceive it in that way as far as trying to get to the, the root of how are we the way we are. And we obviously are going to have language. The question is, is what's the best way to use it? Yeah, I, I, oddly enough, there, there's a guy uh, named Ludwig Wittgenstein mm-hmm. who wrote, uh, he wrote a number of things. He was a very, very odd character. Um, he wrote something called The Blue Book. And one of the conclusions that he came to is a lot of uh, issues that we pick up in philosophy seem to be basically tricks of language <laughs> and to some extent he was right you know one of the things that's interesting about Wittgenstein is he lived as a goat herder for a while um, he's actually a relatively spiritual deep person he decided to come into Cambridge gave a lecture to Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead. And at the end of his lecture, Bertrand Russell went up and handed him the hat and said, you need to be the chair of philosophy, I resign. This was a heavy hitter. One of the things that I think Wittgenstein didn't make the next jump to, okay, is I think that some philosophical problems are basically linguistic by nature. but there's stuff that is beyond that, that um, is not linguistic and still has a lot of depth, validity, and importance to our lives. He never got into that part. He sort of stopped and said, hey, these, these sorts of questions. One, one of the things he said is if you have a question that can't be proven to be true or false empirically or logically, it's called Viennese uh, empiricism, um, what is the sense of the question? Maybe the question is not to answer the question, but why would you answer 
or ask that question. Okay. So and the value of the question itself, don't yeah, you think? Let's add some questions then. So we're going to use language, right? It's the only way we have, or it's, it's the primary way we have of communicating. Right. And it's, the, it's one of the, the ways of transferring knowledge. So how can we use it better? What is, yeah, what is the best use of language? Um, if we just take it face value that it's limiting, maybe we ought to unpack how, but actually, yes, let's do that. And how can we use it better? How is it limiting? How can we use it better? Um, and I guess those are the two key questions. You have a third one? How is it limiting and how can let's we use it Let's ask one better? question at a time. How's that? That's, well, I, I got two. So. <laughs> Part of it, I think it's limiting um, sometimes because you don't have the vocabulary, breadth of enough vocabulary to cover it. And you may have thoughts um, that are relatively crystal clear in your mind, so you think, but you don't have specific words that will match them. A word that would come to mind is, is Weltanschau, which is German for worldview. Um, sometimes you have to know the language and able to be able to discuss it, which brings the point back that analytical thought basically is the linguistic process. The other thing that I think is absolutely true, um, there's an old statement in philosophy that if you can't write it, you don't know it. You may think you know it, mm. but you don't know it. And the issue in philosophy when you uh, take a test or you're, you're writing something, is you don't want a 400-page tome. You want to be clear, succinct, and understandable. And if you start using words that are muddy or unclear, in fact, that's, that's telling the person who's reading that you, in fact, are muddy and unclear in what you're trying to say. So I want to dabble with what we were dabbling with last Thursday, remember? You brought up Kingdom of Heaven. You were you went straight there, and we got into Tolstoy. Yes. And then we, yeah. <laughs> yes, we did. And we basically said that maybe the best use of language is what we call poetry. And by best, it might just mean the clearest or cleanest or truest. Well, I, I, I think that's true to a large extent, and I think it's because poetry is one of those magical things that combines the linguistic process with what we feel on an intuitive basis. Feeling. It's, it's feeling art. is key there. Yeah, it's feeling. Oh, it's there's art. rhythm yeah. and there's music. Music, yeah. Yeah, you know, the feeling the, is important. The uh, feeling—that's the other, the other half of us. I think that is ignored too much. Right, and the language we currently are used to, and obviously we're playing with right now, may literally, obviously unintentionally, um, force us or put us in a position where we are needing to negate the feelings or ignore the feelings. I think that's true. That's why Alan Watts wrote a book called Be Here Now. Your, your thinking process analytically is an abstract process and wants to pull you away from the experiential level of what you're going through. And it, it creates something that is more ethereal and not tied down into the guts of the experience guts. so it's 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 uh it can be elusive what's that Taoism line we were playing with <laughs> you don't want <laughs> it's in the shit yeah yeah <laughs> that's the corn kernels yeah yeah the, yeah about, it's a line from you know what? what's that i was gonna say how about those idioms or expressions that you can't even translate like i'm a bilingual person 
Yeah, and like I have that we problem all that, the time. Yeah. <laughs> I can't just say it. I just give up because you can't capture the, the the feeling, the the actual it of the expression, no matter how much you try. It, you know that I'm glad you brought that up, Diana, because that's actually very interesting and it highlights one of the things I was talking about. You know it because you learned the words to express it in your language, mm -hmm. but in my language. Okay, I don't know those words and the syntax and the construction, so you can't convey that the music thought of it to me until I learn those words and language. That's how, in a way, you know, we think we're really smart and, <laughs> and cognitive processes, but in fact, if we don't know the right words and the construct and the nuances, we can be totally off the spot mm -hmm. and be missing the entire thing and, and not get what that person is trying to say. Yeah, yes. and it's more than the word because the word itself, even if you knew the word and the language, that word represents a worldview, yes. represents an idiosyncrasy of the people that are using it. That's yeah. why they, they, they boiled it down to that word. And when I say that word, my brother totally gets it. Yeah. It's an attitude. It's a way of life. It's a breathing. It's a rhythm. It's an expression, what it means to be pure Uruguayan. Pura vida. Pura vida, for example, and yeah. so many others. But I, you, I can't even start to explain what it means, a couple of words in Spanish that we use only in Uruguay. Yeah. I, I won't even try. You well, have to be there for a few months. Language evolves <laughs> by people trying to express their feelings, their emotions, their thoughts, their actions, their ideas. And um, if you don't know that language, you quite often can't understand it. Um, that's why I was saying, you know, if you listen to two philosophers sometimes, especially if you have a couple of beers, it'll sound like two idiots talking in a corner. It's because you don't understand their language. Once mm. you understand the words and the language and how they're using it, then you can start to key in a little bit um, finer, hone in on what's actually being said. Too bad. I don't, I don't know if anybody here has alcohol ever, really. Probably won't I, don't, I don't drink anymore. <laughs> what can we do instead of beers? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kombucha? Yeah, well, that's different, but sure. Another yeah, fermentation? Yeah, that's true. We could have coca tea, That's sure. True. In in the Andes, that I had for for my fiftieth birthday, I actually climbed up Machu Picchu. It was a beast, and it's fourteen thousand feet high, and I had severe altitude sickness, mm. which is a, a constriction of your blood vessels. So you ate the leaves, and uh, this sweet little Peruvian lady, probably five foot two came over and gave me this big cup of tea with, I don't know, 60 leaves in it. Coca leaves. And she said, drink this. You know, I drank that. Do you that have that? No, no, I chew coca leaves, but yeah. never had the tea. And sure shooting, boy. Bam. <laughs> 15, 20 minutes later, I know I not only didn't have a headache, I was ready to climb running, up to 20,000 Running feet. up the Machu Picchu, up and down, up and down, it, up it and down. absolutely, totally works. Let's sure. do laps. And, yeah. and, and over there, it's 100% it's, it's, it's legal. They carry around little sure. pouches with yeah. coca leaves in it. And then chew on it. Mm -hmm. helps well, yeah, it's not, that's not cocaine, obviously. No, it's local that's to where the... cocaine is derived from. It's right, a chemical but it's process. Not it's not cocaine. Just like tobacco and cigarettes, it's mm -hmm. not the same thing. Yeah, it's medicinal actually. It is. It's very medicinal. That's why she gave it to me. Mm -hmm. She didn't give it to me to get high. She cured my headache. Yeah. And it was 
ghastly. All right. Wasn't there an it we were talking about? Mm-hmm. A while ago. <laughs> so Nancy's experience, we're talking about it. Your experience, it, the it, 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 um, not the clown. So how does language and our understanding of language as potentially limiting relate to it and this understanding that, like, what? why does the poetry part fit in? Because... It's still language. It's just other than having rhythm and um, it's a matter of it not being as analytical, like you're saying, not as literal. We're using metaphor. I think it's speaking to our emotional and intuitive sides. This gets into something I'd sort of like to delve into if I can just a little bit. I think anything's okay. Okay. So I... No permission needed. I, I didn't come up with this myself. And it's not new. I've been thinking about it for 45 years. Um, I think that one's self, your being, um, has these different levels to it. And this ties into Feldenkrais. Um, At the lowest level, it's what I call autonomic. There's stuff going on in your brain that is making your body function, your heart pump, your blood move. Um, Involuntary. Endorphins kick up it's your brain that's creating mm-hmm. your all, all these different things and it is it isn't you're not even aware of it on a subconscious level it just sort of happens the next level up from that is um, there's a subconscious self and there's a lot of work that's been done on this and, and i don't want to get into freud because i'm not talking about you know the the id's super ego ego stuff there's a subconscious self um and that's that's a deep part of who you are if you read people like einstein one of the things they used to do is he would have a um a complex problem and he'd think about it he'd write it down and he'd go to sleep mm. he'd wake up in the morning he had the idea it's your subconscious self that's working on it one of the things i've always found fascinating in philosophy it's called the study of acrasia um, how does self-deception happen? In order to deceive yourself about something, you must be aware of what it is you're trying to hide from yourself. Oh my God. So, so that happens at a subconscious level. Your subconscious level saying, I don't want to recognize the fact that I'm short or whatever it is, mm-hmm. okay? And somehow that blocks that thought or understanding from bubbling up to your conscious self. So that's the next level. You have conscious self. hiding. Well, yeah, it's hiding. You're hiding it from yourself. But the, the really interesting thing, Colin, is you have to know what it is you're hiding from to hide it from yourself. That's the twist that makes it so fascinating. So then on a deep level, you know... And yes. potentially you can lift that veil, yes. that black, Absolutely. hiding, pushing, negating, denying, and also, make the that limitation Absolutely. conscious. And, and, and your and, identity. We're talking about identity in a way. Well, it, this is part of what I consider the core of your identity. And, and this is also, I think, part of what causes stress and unhappiness is deep down inside you may say, I hate my job. I'm wasting my life. This, this is pointless, this is futile, it's nihilistic, you know, on and on and on. You know, but your conscious self is saying, oh, I love my job. I, you know, what I'm really saying is I like getting paid, you know. And then it creates this internal stress 
or it could be you know emotional in a relationship you you tell yourself you're you love this woman you're into him or man or whatever the case may be but subconsciously you're saying this is not a good fit i don't like this so it's that shift and grinding between the subconscious and conscious that creates some of our emotional problems and sometimes in, in therapy what they're really trying to do is break through that barrier make you aware of what that subconscious is bring it up to the conscious level so you can resolve it so at the conscious level i think there's two elements to it there's this um, mathematical linguistic cognitive process that i prefer to call analytic thought and then there's the intuitive and emotional level that I consider all part of our physiological structure. There's a level above that. And that I view as the spiritual self. Um, my personal belief is that we are not bodies with spirits. We are spirits that are temporarily inhabiting a body. Um, and by the way, that's not necessarily just a, uh, a religious type of notion. Plato himself talks about this in the allegory of the cave that we're born into the world knowing things and we spend our life looking at shadows on a wall trying to understand them in fact what we're trying to do is get back to what we knew before we were born so this goes this goes back over 2000 years in, in western philosophy all right so, so that's go, a soul level go more into that, <laughs> that so not? i want to ask why would we hide and what <laughs> What is our identity? What kind of identity can we... Well, uh, what is it that we see when we hide less or we don't hide at all? Well, um, and you can go with Plato. That, that's actually... I, I, I want to fi finish this trilogy and then I, and let, let me... you know. Oh my gosh. Loop, loop I didn't realize back. it was a trilogy. Well, trilogy is incorrect because there's more levels. One, two, three, three, four, and then uh, let me Let me go five. back to it. Um, after the spiritual... Itself, um, there is something another level that I would call a cosmic spirituality. This is something that you'll read about with mystics, and to me, that's a point that you may reach through meditation. Yeah, there may be different ways you can get there. A lot of mystics, Russians, <laughs> mystics being some of the, the most notable ones, they talk about the self, but the self in the sense of not being other but part of. So you're not other than the universe. You're more part of this fluid, dynamic universe in the sense of self, individuality as being other and distinct starts to dissolve a little bit into this cosmic awareness. And that's you and the trees and the pond and the fish. And yes. the, yeah. So that, those, those, those are the levels. So your question is, um, how or why do we hide these things from ourselves? Yeah, it's really important to understand why. Like, so, you know, because I'm always in the midst of this. So I'm going to shed a little layer here. I'm always thinking, okay, their audience, there's an audience here. We sort of want the audience to be engaged. Are they going to be engaged? What are they going to be engaged in? They gotta, we got to connect with them. we got to make this so that... Da, 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 da. And I think about, like... Because this is a conversation that you and I are not... We're not the only two having. I have this with many people. Yes. Dan, this is just relevant to what we are doing and offering here fundamentally and there's a need i mean that word hiding is so important and 
there's a book actually from one of my professors back at Columbia who literally, I think it was called Hiding. We impact that. I mean, we, we cover ourselves literally yes. to hide. We have our, we do things to our hide. Yes. And then we, the social norms are yeah. mostly about hiding Absolutely. and limiting and it relates to the language and identity. I think it's an, Important. Identity is that which hides underneath what it is. Or well, it doesn't have to be. And that's what's so exciting and why I fundamentally see us getting... Why I get so excited is because there's a possibility where we don't hide. Yes. And what would that be like? <laughs> well, I actually think that... I think that a, would be nice. <laughs> to, to, to a certain extent, I, I think that um, it's noble to a certain level. It may be... Which part? And that... That you, your your true self that is that which you are not hiding is noble. I think it's I think it's noble it's a to a certain word. extent. Yeah. Um, where where I don't want to get wrapped up um, with words is concentrating the word noble because it tends to be linked. To, oh, knowable. Yes, I thought you said noble. No, both words no, are good though. Knowable, you can know it. <laughs> right. Um, no, the noetic. Well, that's it, back to William James. That it, noetic quality. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think it's Shakespeare once said, "The world is the stage, and all the actors that are playing upon it." So I, I think we're taught smart. we're taught um, concepts in of oughts. Okay. You should oughts and shoulds. Yeah. They're 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 the killers when it comes to your personality. You know, you're you're taught. We don't even this. mean to sometimes. Most no, of the time. It's it's it's. Um, sociological you know we're taught it by our parents we're taught it by the society we're in we're taught it by the people around and then we think up these things of what we think we ought to be and we try to project ourselves as being that so we hope other people will see what it is we want them to see so they won't kill us or... so <laughs> Yeah, or or you know, it, it could be anything. You know, I, I want to. You know, you're in business. I want to be thought of as, as being you know, um, a nice guy, but but serious and and good at my work and blah, blah, blah. and I may do a hundred different things to try to project that to other people. Right, but like it may you know not your shit. Be yeah. yeah, but it may not be. Um, in some cases, it may be totally false and artificial. That's how you end up being a con man, like our president. <gasps> Sorry, a little bit of you politics. Did it. Um, you, you can edit that Turn off. it off. You, you, you can edit that off. Um, but it, it is the attempt, I think, of forming a concept in your mind of how you want to perceive yourself as well as how you want others to perceive you and then acting on that basis to sort of project that image that you're trying to right. create. And I think what we're both saying is that there's a fundamental unintended or maybe you call it subconscious motivation that is sociological in its root sort of bigger macro cultural in its root and it does have a fear base it's not literally about being killed but maybe ostracized or alienated or alone left alone yeah. I think those are the two key words I think all people um, want to feel loved and want to now feel yeah. want to feel as if they belong and are accepted and sometimes we create this image of what we think that person should be like to try to convince other people that we are that way but really if you peel the 
layers of the onion back, what it comes down to is you want to be loved, you want to be accepted, you want to be um, uh, taken as you are for who you are. Do you, do you know that the essential motivation, I think it's fair to say of Moshe or of us as Feldenkrais practitioners, but of the essential goal of the Feldenkrais method is to love yourself and to accept yourself and organize yourself in such a way that you can accept yourself? Yeah, uh, I, actually I didn't, um, but <laughs> thanks to Diana giving me a marvelous book, which I've read and I'm still reading, um, I understand a lot more about it and 100% agree with it. Which, if I can segue for a minute, one of the things that I found that I, for me, in order to sometimes accept or understand what's, ha what, what's happening and going on, I really have to try to conceptualize it a little bit first. So when I saw the remarkable change in my wife's problem with her back and scoliosis, and I sat back and said, holy shit, what is going on here? And it was quick to me, relatively quick, not years, you know, six, eight weeks. And I think, and I, and I really, being a type of person in my eyes, I, I had to try to understand this, put my arms around it. And I think part of what we're doing, Diana, Colin, you correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what we're doing is, is that we're trying to become aware of how we hold ourselves, what our movement is, that's your awareness through movement, your ATM. Because most of that stuff is subconscious. It's not, it's not at, at the level where we're truly aware of it and we're digging down, I actually think all the way down to the autonomic level. And that to me is sort of like to establish a baseline. And then you understand what you're doing. And I think the next step is to visualize that and then visualize how you want to be if you're walking crooked and you, you you need to visualize standing straight and then you learn how to make your body do that so with the with the visualization process there's a lot of work that goes in and it has to be repetitious over and over and over and over again and that's in part because our, our brains have something that's called neuroplasticity and there's been a lot of work that's been done on this in the levels of science in the last uh, at least five or six years that I'm aware of. Um, when you go into the military or if you're doing um, training as an athlete, you're trained to do the same thing over and over and over and over again until it becomes automatic, instinctual. And what I believe that's really doing is you're changing literally the neural plasticity of your brain Oddly enough, they've, they've done experiments with MRIs where they've actually seen the physical change inside your brain structure when your neuroplasticity takes on a different pattern. So part of what I think is going on is you're, you're visualizing what you're doing, you're concentrating on, you're going through actions, repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, and lo and behold, you're a, you start to literally physically change your body because you're pushing sort of this this process and awareness that you have all the way down to the auto, autonomic level and it becomes part of you and your process. Neuroplasticity for, for those out there in, in uh, the listening land is, is something that 
you really should look at. There's a lot of work that's being done in it, and um, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that uh, that there's a lot of validity validity to this. It's fascinating that Feldenkrais was using neuroplasticity in 1950s, yes. right? Be way before functional way before MRIs popular. were even on the horizon. Yeah. I I think you're you're pointing at some brilliant. Um, core aspects of how this works and what make the change in Nancy and we see it in our clients all the time here in Coro. And I want to maybe add a couple of things. I think the beginning of the process is identifying what is it that you're doing. Yes. And Feldenkrais said, if you don't know what you're doing, you can't do what you want. So first you have to just very kindly with a lot of compassion just say, what the fuck am I doing? Yes. What is my pattern, my posture, habit, that is limiting, That's your age, creating yeah. pain, creating discomfort, creating limitation. Yeah. Um, and it has to come with a big dose of acceptance and self-love because we tend to identify a pattern and beat ourselves up because we can't, we should, we ought to be this or that, or he can do it, then I should be able to do it and mm -hmm. so on. So that is gotta be a whole new way of uh, bringing awareness to yourself. And then through the process of either the ATM or the functional integration private session, I think what happens is that you become, you get a glimpse of what's possible, a state of being where you are taller, lighter, more symmetric, state of more being able, a really good word. that's it. And, and, so then you have that as a new ideal, as a new bar as to what is possible. Yeah? What, 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 what I was <laughs> say saying it, is say that's it. what I'm talking about when I talk about visualizing it. Okay. You really... and But you can't visualize it until you experience it, unless you experience yes. it first. Yeah, absolutely. Because visualization for it to work, to really create a synapsis that is, that is able to be repeated and... and creates more myelin and, and gets stronger it needs to be precise it needs to be intense it needs to have sensory input it needs to have emotional and it needs to be like uh, not just the image but it needs to have like meat to it it needs well, to be so, so, so there's another detailed truism I, that i want to kick in everybody wants to talk tend to be mnemonic because it's an old saying if you don't know where you are you for sure don't know where you're going yeah, yeah same, same thing, thing. Yeah. <laughs> well as a computer guy richard and diana in this context, we can unpack the very nor boring but very helpful metaphor that I use a lot, which is if you think of your bones as the hardware and your soft tissue as the software, your nervous system is the it program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it's program, reprogram, uh, rewiring. You're a well, computer yeah, guy. Uh, so. Actually, yeah, that's how I made my He's way. also a computer guy, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, so I'm 40 years in it, um, coding all the way up to working in the belly of the beast. So coding is exactly what we're talking about, yeah. isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And and yeah, and, and that, I, I totally 100% yeah. agree and, with and that. And you talked about a very important word, which a lot of people have resistance. I, I have resistance to it as well, which is repetition. Well, something will always require that. Like you just said, a relationship, there will always be some consistent focus on improvement because that mm -hmm. is life right that's just a requirement for life because as biological creatures we're bound to change mm -hmm. so we have to continue to adapt um, I think what you just made me think of is that we're talking about relationships like the ideal is for Nancy to be able to 
thank you for allowing us to talk about you, Nancy, huh? <laughs> um, or anyone to be able to organize themselves well enough. Mm-hmm. And so the relationships that we're engaged in with anyone mm-hmm. ideally shift. And then it's a matter of the relationship with yourself shifting and potentially even we'll say improving. Um, and that's, that's really what, that's where the magic happens, right? Yeah. Your relationship with yourself, because you have one. You have mm-hmm. a relationship with yourself. Yeah. I, I want to do That's why it's not about fixing. And, and I meant to say, you, once you do it and you do it again, you are able to identify again, what is it that is working? What am I doing that brings me back to that state that is closer to the possible best me, where I am not in pain, where I am vital, where I can move again. And so then I can do it again and I can do it all the time. So it's nothing more empowering than that. So, so I want to um, tag on that and just drill in a little bit because I, I think you're 100% right. Um, the art of cutting a dovetail, which is a joint in work in woodwork, uh, is graphically simple. It's not a complex looking joint. Learning how to cut it and have it fit so tight that you can't even see the lines of the crack requires a lot of constant, constant work and repetition for you to develop the motor skills to be able to do it. Now, if when you're in that process, you're thinking about what you're doing while you're doing it, mm-hmm. you're not doing it. Right. You have to stop thinking about what you're doing and do it become part of it that's when you Mm. start to truly internalize it so repetition without that process of involvement is just going to be boring and well that gets to the intention the intention isn't fixing the intention isn't even helping and we literally talked about this the intention if there is one is serving and really regardless of how you word it it's like a whole different approach from a purely cultural standpoint of how do you even embrace the experience of living whether you think of yourself as a spiritual being or a whatever it doesn't really matter the the what is true is true for all there you're gonna change and you're going to go through different stages in your life and there's no denying that if you're going to enjoy your life and your experience you need to be able to adapt and adjust and in our our norm is one of literally thinking that we can put ourselves in a state that is well not even necessarily literally thinking but normally approaching it as if there is going to be an ending or a static place where we can arrive and it's that that's it this is done now and that's just not even close to true it's never going to be true and it's not close to true it's never been true and it I've seen this because I've traveled, you've traveled, you've literally lived in Uruguay, you're from Uruguay, I don't know if it's different enough, but in plenty of places where I've been, and then you can read about it anecdotally, um, there's (laughs) a whole different approach to a challenge. There are places on this beautiful earth where people's experiences, when it comes to dealing with a problem and a challenge it's not the same at all it's it's literally not even the word problem is totally different like if it comes to having to there's a 
beautiful story called the or a book called the Continuum Concept. Um, and in the beginning of the book, the author relays her witnessing the difference between the people that she was traveling with and the people that she was that were in the country. I forget which country it was. And they were traveling. They had to move something very heavy. I think it was a big wooden canoe. And she explains how the people she had traveled with, who I believe were from Europe, um, hated the whole experience, and they were cursing and bitching and getting um, really upset about it. And the people who were literally doing the same thing, but were from that native area, were experiencing the same challenge, but were laughing and literally just playing. And it looked like they were, they might as well have been running around on a playground like children. Mm-hmm. But it was the same exact thing. And Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about language and identity and all of this and what is there that can really shift, it's, it's that ability, I'd say, to break down the programming, rewire, so that you can... I mean, why else would you do it if, you can't, if it's not about enjoying the experience more? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I think that a lot of people, especially in the Western world, um, live most of their life in an internal cognitive state not being aware of what's going on around them and they're just in a mill running in a mill like a hamster in a rat cage and get up go to work do this do that back and you're you're again not here now you're missing the old statement you know time to smell the roses yeah, because one day you walk down the path and you're going to be dead and the roses will be there and you'll never have the beauty of experience of roses. So I, I think there's a, an inertia of habit that we have, especially in this country, that makes us follow certain patterns in our lives that we need to be aware of, that we need to break, stop, break out of. Meditation, I think, is one of the areas that helps you stop start to do that and I just read recently of all people George W. Bush has taken up meditation and he does it every day in the morning now this is a guy who worked with Darth Vader <laughs> okay and and yeah I, I won't go into all the politics with but I can't say he was my favorite president at the time he has taken up meditation and the article I read a month ago shocked me because he was extolling all the virtues of meditation how it's calmed him down let him get more in touch with himself um and that's that's by the way part of what koro brings shows you that process so that makes me think that there's obviously some sort of inherent well the programming that we can all connect with by the way Darth Vader was Dick Cheney just for those who don't know thank you in case that wasn't obvious right um yeah yeah I don't know if I doubt Dick Cheney meditates that's probably not true shoots his friends in the face with shotguns (laughs) we'll ask him yeah uh there there seems to be uh yeah so that we don't need to unpack George Bush or Dick Cheney right now or even Trump Although I am interested in comparing Trump to Mr. Rogers. That's, that's a conversation worth having, but maybe not at the second. But um, not comparing, but you know, we'll see. Uh, the, the common ground. There's, you know, there's a, an even 
level playing field, if you will, that we can all connect with, it sounds like. And if you break down the programming and the cultural effects and the social, the social normalizing and the habits, it seems like there's a common space we can all find, even George Bush, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah and uh, I, I don't know, I don't want to wax too, um, too far into the esoteric, but there's a lot of work that's being done right now in what they call quantum entanglement and um, in, in physics. And it's, it's not only at the uh, sub, subatomic level, but part of what it's, it's leading people to, and there's a, a great book out called uh, Biocentrism, part of what it's leading to um, is something obviously enough that was, oddly enough, was, was stated by um, Eastern philosophers several thousand years ago, is that in a way we're all connected. Now, we're all connected as, as people, but it turns out that physical reality is, as we see it, is also in fact all connected. And two particles that are quantumly entangled, um, if you separate them, no matter how far the separation is, and you perform an action on particle A, that action happens simultaneously on particle B, instantaneous, no time, for the speed of light to travel instantaneous. They are literally internally connected. So personally, I believe as some of the mystics do, um, that there's a connection of all of this together that we're part of. That's Unity. that cosmic self that I was talking Yeah, you, know, you get to that level where you start to recognize that and the concept of your individual self starts to diffuse a little bit. Well, it changes. Your sense of self changes because yeah. it's both. It has to. It's be like both. you're you're a bubble that's popping up on water, mm-hmm. and then you you know the bubble goes back down. And yeah, part of the water not again. the drop to the ocean. Yeah, both or both actually. Mm-hmm. Right. By the way, Leibniz oh. wrote a book called Monadology. He also invented invented calculus, and he talked about um, so windowless monads. When he talked about something that is that is astonishing, several hundred years ago, astonishingly close to um, some of the new concepts in contemporary physics about how matter is constructed and related to each other. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we might be able to explain using quantum entanglement, in part, how does it work um, when. When you have a person on the table as a Feldenkrais practitioner and you get them to that parasympathetic state where their habitual patterns subsude and then their their tone, muscular tone, slows down or diminishes. So they're kind of like tabula rasa or as close as possible. And then you go on to coding, recoding them or rewiring them. Um, so, Tabula rasa, by the way, fruit out there means clean slate. So mm-hmm. for clean slate. That's right. So you get them to that state. It takes about twenty minutes yeah. on average. I mean, you see that by experience. I'm not citing any scientific paper here, but I'm saying, like, for the regular person coming in once a week, full of their t- natural tension, um, they hold um, every day. It takes about fifteen twenty minutes for them to get to a state, and then you go into let's say rewiring them, feeding, feeding them quote-unquote new sensory information so they can find a new place, a new potential, what's possible for their legs, their spine, their head, their shoulders. 
um, then we don't know how does it work exactly. So people talk about it as a quote unquote dance of two nervous systems, right? I am in very good alignment myself as a practitioner. I'm aware of what I'm doing. I have good body positioning, good technique, whatever. And then I introduced this new idea. Look, your arm can reach that way and not just here. Yeah, your yeah. shoulder can move that way and not just there. Um, but how about quantum entanglement in the picture? Yeah, I, I'm smiling in part because when, when you said dance, there's a great book called Dancing Ruling Masters on, on, on quantum physics. It's, it's sort of interesting, bridges the Eastern and Western sort of view of things. But yeah, I, I think part of what you do um, is you have to strip away that outer, partially artificial self peel it out like an onion, pull mm -hmm. the layers off, get down closer to who you are before you can start to reconstruct and remap your processes and make use of your neuroplasticity, changing mm -hmm. how you act. Could, it, could it be possible that as we peel the onion and we get to the place of listening, as my nervous system and your nervous system are connecting and dancing, I am also entangled with you on a quantum level. So my atoms and your atoms are becoming that oneness. And then out of that emerges a possible self that is better, yours and mine, because actually I feel better after the session than before, almost as if I received it, though I'm the one supposed to supposed to be giving it. it. So, so this Do you agree? Kind of, oh, yeah, because if we're not paying attention to ourselves, we're going to move something in a totally arbitrary or ineffective way whether it's pick an arm up in a certain way or roll ahead a certain way like it's like oh wait no i'm not sitting comfortably hang on mm -hmm. then do you make yourself move differently as well mm -hmm. yeah i uh i want to use the word quantum entanglement lightly but i i absolutely agree with with what you're saying and i think that you can um sort of tune in and get on the same harmony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I think that's part of the process and it's a necessary part of the process. And I do think that at a certain level, on a, on a, a physics-based level, that, that the separation between individuals is not possibly as great as we think. Penrose, again, Roger Penrose. Um, again, head department of uh, mathematics and physics in Cambridge University not a schmo mm -hmm. okay? talks about this and um, investigation of what he calls telomeres which are part of the very end of our synaptic structure inside our neural network and um, there's work that's being done to sort of isolate this it's it sort of gets a little bit of empirical verification to what we're talking about it's not just thought up there's actually uh, some substance out there that's being proven, or at least being lifted up to a level where it be, can be quantitized. Um, it's very interesting stuff. Most of this is new, new within the last 30 years. So what is it that fixes the, fixes the atoms to the point that I can see you and you have a different shape than me and you're separate than me, but what you're saying is that we're not. Well, no, I'm not saying that we're not. I mean, we, we are. Okay, I believe. Okay, I mean, I don't wake up and look in the mirror and say, "Oh my God, I've changed." I, I'm not sure I like my hair this way. I'm Diana. 
we're, 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 we're separate. <laughs> we're, 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 we're separate. Um, we're, we're separate, you know, separate individuals. But what I do think is the case is that all of nature, now there, there's a word called pantheism, okay, that Good. I'm yeah. not sure a lot of people understand. But basically pantheism says, um, as Leibniz says in the monodology, that uh, we're all sort of part of this mixture. And think of it as a bowl, a big bowl of water. Okay, if you're in a big bowl of water and you drop a stone at one end of that bowl, that's a localized event, mm -hmm. but it's going to be felt at the very, very opposite end of that bowl. It's like the wings wave. of the butterfly, and yes, yeah, yeah. So, to to a large extent, I I think that we we very much are on a spiritual level all sort of entangled and together to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Um, that's the foundation of what I think when people talk about man. Did you get those vibes? They're negative vibes. Or, wow, that person's really great. I love being around them. These are these are perceptual feelings that we have to other people's vibrations. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what validity Karelian photography has, but there's some potential that they've actually been able to photograph ours and extensions. I don't want people to think this is crackpot stuff. I'm trying to make it as <laughs> as or even after know, con con concrete as possible. <laughs> But, but the the point being is that um, everything is not as separate and distinct as we think in physics, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true on the human and emotional level. Yeah, we're all in this together too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you you do feel the attraction to certain people or situations or yes. foods or music or environments and you feel their rejection or ah yes. that doesn't jive with me yep. and i think it's because we resonate in a similar or different frequency yes. and it's nothing woo -woo about it it could be measured because we can measure so many things and there's so many others that are away from the the scale of the scientific measurement but they still exist like we don't see light that we could measure we don't see we don't hear frequency that dogs hear right so there's a lot more than we can see or measure and yet there are some people that if i get too close i cringe and there are some people that i can't get close enough because i want to be one with these people yeah i'm, I'm gonna uh, jump into the weeds for a second because you said something i think that's really important um, I'm talking about vibrations and harmony. Um, some of the work that's recently been done in the last eight, eight years is called string theory in physics. And when you go to school, you're taught, you know, everything's made up of atoms and an atom looks like a little planetary system. And in the middle, you, you have a nucleus that's got proton neutrons. It's like the sun. Then you've got electrons that are swinging around out there. And somehow all these things put together and that's what matter is. Well, there's two things that are really interesting about this. Um, despite all the money and work we've put into the Halo Collider, we can't find that smallest BB. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. Second one is if you take a look at the atom, the, the distance between the electrons, which you can think as being the outer shell and the nucleus, which is the inner shell, is 95% space. What, what gives us the sense of solidity? And the third is, it turns out, according to certain areas in, in contemporary physics, 
that matter is made up, you can think of it as really tiny, 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 small strings that are vibrating. They have their own harmony. There's no stuff that's vibrating. There are these little strings of vibration. And that vibration quality that is unique, that particular megahertz tone, whatever it is, that, that vibration quality it, it is what makes that particular atom uranium or mm. steel or whatever you know the, the elements are in the peri periodic table and go together. So if you think about this, there's two things that should come out and hit you in the face like a bucket of cold water. The first is, darn it, when I slap my hand on this table, it's hard. Well, that's odd because it's 95% space. What's going on? And the second is, you look for those atoms that you're taught. It's, it's, it's called Bohr planetary concept of, of atoms that you're taught in the school. You take a look for those little BBs. They're not there. And in fact, this has just been brought out recently. If you take a look at the path of an electron from, this, this goes back to Heisenberg's and determinist equations, take a look at a path from an electron from one side to another, it doesn't follow a specific path. It is everywhere mm -hmm. until it reaches the other side. And it's only at the point of observation yes. that you can concretize. That's what, what I call fixing. Yes. Because when you look at it, it's there. But if you don't look at it, it could be anywhere. By the way, this stuff even baffled Einstein. He called it uh, spooky action at a distance. No one's quite sure what to do with this, but this is uh, this is laboratory stuff. This is thought up by the head of Marvel comic books. So, why do you think the table <laughs> feels solid when it's actually space? I don't know, but that's our experience. Could it be our mind creating the construct the, the same the, way that the ice feels colder are, to you than it ever feels to me? There are a number of theories. Again, by professors of mathematics um, that uh, start to discuss this very thing, what it is that we're experiencing. And one of the things that, and this can be very tricky, can be very confusing, but one of the things that they're saying, they're, it's being said in this book called Biocentrism, is that matter and mind are dependent on each other. That without the mind or the state of observation, it's questionable what matter is. And matter without it being observed, it's questionable what matter is. So this, and, and again, going back to Heisenberg, and I sent you some stuff about wave particle dualities mm -hmm. and all that other stuff that's going on. So this is, again, laboratory yeah, stuff. Yeah, by the way, we've been having this quantum conversation for, for months, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> this is why we're like yeah. ping-ponging this stuff. The, uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that it's uh, basically what Heisenberg can boil down to is you don't know where anything is until you observe it. And the act of observance is creating the position of where it is. And if you don't have that act of observance, you can't even say that it is in a particular location. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere until it's observed. Mm -hmm. And nowhere at the same time. And that's why... And that's if why you're everywhere, you're not that's in right. a specific locality. And that's why without observation, especially non-judgmental witness-like observation, there's no 
awareness and without that awareness you can't know anything thus you can't change anything so that's at the core of going back to the process we saw through nancy and other clients you need that initial moment of self-observation deprived of judgment needing to for it to change or be any different because actually it's changing all the time and it's going to be different tomorrow at the end of the today so that's 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 good you, you're taking this abstract stuff we're talking about and bring it down to that's what yeah. i do baby so, so what yeah what's that mean what, what's yeah that how, me? how do i use it yeah if, I, I, if I don't if i don't find use in it it's just conceptual again and yeah. i don't i mean i care about it we've you're been talking about it for months but i want to nail it down to how can i be of use with it of service to the people that come to us for how do I do this? I want to get from point here to from here to wherever I know I can go. Well, these are the tools, aren't they? Yeah, that's why when I write these little ditties to you and Colin, I I go through the theory and then I say, so what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so how is it applied? What you know? What relevance does this have? It's yeah. interesting, but what, what relevance? Does I it think have? it means that as individuals, in part. And as a culture in general, and a, social, a society in general, we need to, or the the goal and Koru's mission, secrets out there, is to blow your heads up enough so that you're just accepting that you don't know anything. You have to break the inertia. You don't. Well, yeah, I wanted to highlight that we that the not knowing is the that you know you don't know. Yes. And that you know you don't know. Boys. And you can be joyful with that. You can be totally enjoying your this reality. Because, in other words, you know you. That was meant to be more playful and joking. But yes, the <laughs> the goal is in part to catalyze that kind of broader shift. One, mm-hmm. yeah, within so, ourselves so, and with one person at a time that we embrace the not knowing in the way that we relate to it now. Which is, yeah, what what you're pointing to is. The phenomenon of the, at least the 20th century, and I think it's really unique to the 20th century in terms of science. And quantum is almost a 20th century concept. Um, we realize that we can't fully come up with the answers that to come back to language and identity and the hiding that make sense of it all in a way that is, like you say, logical or anal- able to be analyzed the way we try to and. I think inevitably we have to build a world that embraces this different kind of knowing, the knowing we don't know, the mystery. We yeah, a little, a little bit heavier on the intuitive and not, not quite as heavy on the mathematical analytical process. Yeah, and I don't know if that's ever happened. I don't know if there's cultures or, or tribes or societies that have existed like that, but um, they probably embraced it a little bit better than what we normally do. And so... In one part, to me, the goal is, yeah, embrace that on, as an individual. But since we're cultural or social beings, we need to embrace that as a, as a species. So, as, so you do know when you said that you know you don't know. That, yes, that was Socrates. That yeah. the Athenians <laughs> made Socrates drink a gallon of hemlock to get rid of him because they didn't like that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we well, talked about Zealot a moment ago, and I had a conversation about... Well, it was kind of about Jesus the other day, so related to that, yeah. What would happen to him today? But, yeah, we don't need to be social critics necessarily, but, yeah. That... He'd be locked up in a cage in the, uh, <laughs> in the border and t- tagged as an illegal alien. 
So since we're back to this community um Earth. We're back to of, what we sense of community we touch and building. And just see, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the togetherness and the connectedness. Without microscopes. Which we come back to <laughs> pretty much at the end of every conversation we had so far, right, Joe? We we go sure. back to connecting and back. community. So I wanna ask you, uh, because I'm not fully are we, sure. Are we closing? Yeah, maybe. Um maybe we're closing, yeah. <laughs> we're respectful of your time and we know that we gave you this window, so we're gonna finish soon, but I want to ask you. Say something like "there is no time." Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> like some deep how, shit about how, time. How can you be sure that a certain amount of time elapsed? Oh no! Well, you mean time God. goes forward and back, and we don't know where? Yeah, let's. Re- and and how how would you prove it to me if you did know? <laughs> Blow my brain right now. Um, I want to ask you: Are you sure that we need to be loved? And we need to belong, or could it be that we need to love and experience love? Both, both. absolutely both. The question was for him. Oh shoot, I did it again. See, because you said it as such a big statement, and when, when you, I know you guys are soulmates, <laughs> but when you said it as such a statement, I made myself like a moment, give myself a moment to think about it, and we didn't go back to that. But I, I used to believe that we all need to belong and that we all need to be loved. And after reading a bit of Anthony DeMella, who's on the board right now, and his book on awareness, I realized, actually, no. What we need is to love and to, and to know and to become aware and to understand. And with that comes uh, the belonging. And with that comes the dual path of loving and being loved and I all think that. that's true, but it takes two to dance. Mm-hmm. Which means that I think we both have an innate, built into us, desire to be loved and to be accepted. Uh, I think very a lot of creatures do, dogs do. You know, you can you can see it in other than just human beings. Um, and I think we have an, a desire inbuilt in us. We're social creatures. You sit us in a cell by ourselves and you go crazy. You know, that's why you know putting somebody in solitary is considered an extremely cool form of punishment we're social creatures right but that's that edge and and boundary between needing to belong or needing to accept others or wanting to fit in and that and thus project myself as this way so you love me and you like me and i live my life for you versus i just want to love you and if you don't love me back well so so here's where the rub comes okay i want to love you because I know who you are inside, but I may not like your current personality and how you're acting. Mm-hmm. And that, that is what creates some of that social tension. But you know that deep down inside, that person is a, a good person and you want to become part of them. I'm thinking basically we're, we're quoting Huey Lewis in the news right now. We're quoting that one song by that band <laughs> U2. What about the sure. more music? <laughs> Yeah. What, what about that obscure rock band, the, the Beatles? I've heard them. That's true. They're mm-hmm. those new young hip guys. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> By the way, I lived in Berkshires many years ago and had a friend who owned a, a, a recording studio called Spectrum Studios. And I actually listened to them um, record one of Huey Lewis's records. <laughs> 
it, You're speak, it was, you wanted to get to both and, right? Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. was, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to get to both end, and I wanted to get to this um, ultimate need to just see reality for what it is. And even though we don't really know, because quantum physics proves that we don't know, um, to stop seeking for the answer out there and yeah. to be loved by you guys out there and accept me. And actually, that's not real. And reach the point of acceptance. I want to accept you for who you are. No. I want to accept myself first, because if I can't accept myself first, there's no freaking way I'm going to be able to accept you or anyone else. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So where do we begin? And both ends is true. It's, it's both. Well, unless you're going to go live isolated from people. But yeah, then eventually you would most likely come back. And yeah, the acceptance of acceptance from yeah, both. Ideally, we can just have that give and take, I'd say, at any moment, right? And with ourselves, with each other, and with our sense of connection to the all. So, so Joe, now because of you, I'm, I'm having all we need is love with exactly the Beatles going round and round and round in my head. <laughs> they might have been right. They're on to something. So how do we name this episode, Love and Quantum Physics, or <laughs> what's your title for this? Do you have a over over encompassing theme? Looking back, too. what's the title of this episode? What did we talk about? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> that, that's the name. But but that that may be the foundation that of, is of your start to understand. <laughs> he gets it. <laughs> it's like that ad. Yeah. <laughs> glow? Nobody glows. He gets it. Is there anything else on your, in your mind? I don't know. It seems like a wrap. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're playing with the, the dance. It's the dance. We're talking about the dance. So now we can all put our clothes back on and go outside. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Then we can finally do it. You keep gesturing with your hand. Right? Or we can go back to the sauna and continue the... I came from an ice bath and I am going to an ice bath. So, <laughs> so you can keep you, your Jeff. clothes off. Are you so in today? Keep I'm your clothes off. Into it. Okay. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Anything in closing, RJ? No, I, I, I've said enough. I want to thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a dream of mine, of ours, actually, to have you in front of a mic because every time we have a conversation, it's like, man, I wish I was what recording the hell this. What that guy saying? Actually, <laughs> I, I feel like I wish I was recording this. I want to hear this again <laughs> and just keep processing it. So I think you're a wonder of um, humanity, uh, an exceptional human, and I am so happy that we had this time to share a little bit of how you're brilliancy operates and and sharing a little bit of uh, more questions actually every time i walk talk with you talk to you i get some answers but mainly more, more questions which i love that thank you my pleasure thank you rich thank you so much for listening to movement matters with colin and diana we are always glad um please check the show notes for more about everything you just heard with regard to the links and um you know, all that relevant jazz. 
We value so much your interest in Coral Real Wellness and in our show. So please share, review, and subscribe to Movement Matters for more conversations on coexistence, love, and awareness soon to come. Thank you, guys. <laughs>